Steve. So friends, we are in the midst of a series that um, we've been working on the last several weeks where we're talking about books of the Bible and specifically their genres. And last week we finally made it to the New Testament Hooray. and the Gospels and with a little bit of sneak uh, sneak peek into Acts at the end of that episode. Um, but what are we, where are we heading to next, Steve? Because there's much more to the New Testament than just the Gospels. Right, which is weird in a couple of levels. The next piece that which takes up the like the biggest chunk of what we call the New Testament is reading other people's mail. Is <laughs> what are sometimes called epistles. Um, and it's the law, isn't it? <laughs> it? It turns out it's illegal now, but it was totally cool back then. In fact, it was intentional. Um, and we'll have to talk a little bit about how what we call the epistles. Um, are similar to uh, what you might call writing a letter today, although even that's a dying art in the age of email, um, and how they are different from uh, a a private letter, and how there are differences between the letters that are seen to be addressed to a particular location, and those that seem to have been like almost written as circular letters that were going to go to multiple locations, and where the writer was like, yeah, this is going to be good in one town, and then read it to the next, and trade letters with them, Um, but there's some of that. Um, We should also probably say, as we talk about epistles, that a large number of the epistles in the New Testament, these letters, are written by or associated with Paul the Apostle, but we also have some letters that are attributed to other folks like Jude, or uh, some are attributed to John, and uh, we've got some uh, ones uh, attributed to Peter, we've got a James in there, we've got a letter called Hebrews, which is not written by Hebrews, and we're not really sure who it was written to, other than that they really knew their Old Testament details, including the deep tracks, like the character of Melchizedek. That's a conversation in and of itself. Um, but so basically, we're, we're reading other people's mail, mm-hmm. and yet, this is these are all letters, well, I, should, I take that back, most of them are written to a public audience of a congregation, there are a couple of places where what we have appear to be personal letters that were written to individual people and that might have had this sort of winking awareness that they'd be read publicly eventually. Philemon, that as one of Paul's letters, is a great great example, where this is a personal letter about a very personal sort of issue going on, um, but surely part of Paul's strategy was knowing that the things he was saying were going to be public and there was pressure on Philemon to do what Paul wanted him to do. That We can have that conversation a little bit too. But we're reading mail. So what are things we should know about when you're going to start reading other people's mail other than the possible jail time you might do if you do it now? I think it's important for us to talk about literacy. Okay. Um, yeah. Because in this culture... Um, it wasn't assumed that everybody was going to go to school and learn how to read and write, mm-hmm. and that there were some who were educated enough to read but not to write, yeah. because that those were considered two very different skills. We tend to teach them at the same time, so as you learn to read, you also learn how to write, but that wasn't the case. Um, Paul, for example, seems to be able to be able to read, but he himself is not a great writer, and we see that in a couple of the ends of his... Um, uh, letters where he says, and see it when I'm writing in my own hand, how big I write. Yeah. And then he kind of like signs it off like so that whoever is getting it will know for sure that it is him that mm-hmm. is writing. But uh, for the most part, everybody used scribes. And scribes were people who could read and write. Um, so sometimes you'd get a letter and if you didn't know how to write, read, you would go to the scribes, they would read it to you. If you had a letter that you wanted to send off, you'd go to the scribes, you would 
tell them what to write, and then they would write it down and then send it off. And there are a number of indications in Paul's letters that this isn't just somebody he's hired off the street, but is probably someone in the Christian community who is there, but is writing in their hand and Paul's dictating. So like yeah. sometimes one of Paul's letters will start, Paul and Silas, or Paul and Timothy, or Paul and Sylvanus writing to the church at blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's who is doing the physical writing? Well, probably the scribe person, or sometimes they use the word amanuensis, but the person who's writing is not Paul, but Paul's dictating. And probably dictating word for word what Paul is saying, but every so often you'll get, like, at the tail end, as you say, not only Paul saying, here's where I'm writing with my own hand, but you'll also get the the, uh, the scribe saying, hi, I, the scribe, am saying hello to you and my, send my greetings to so-and-so that I know in the town um, that are indications that these letters, even though we call it the letter of Paul to the Romans, it's really Paul with a scribe or, you know, so-and-so with a scribe, yeah. Um, maybe another thing we should say about how ancient letters work and how public letters work too is that um, in the ancient world uh, much like today you will have like a letterhead at the top that'll be like who's sending you the letter and then the dear so and so that Paul's letters and and ancient letters in the first century Paul's not new to this uh, would start naming who he is writing and then to the church at so and so um, and usually then in Paul's letters there's almost like a formula where he will then um, give some kind of thanksgiving for what what he's happy about that's going on in the mm-hmm. church he's writing to. There's like some just sort of good common sense, like before you're going to have to say mean stuff to them, and Paul often has to say mean stuff, you want to say something nice. So Paul will start out, I thank God because, and he comes up with something nice to say almost all the time. And that's important because the times that he breaks that pattern, it really tells you something significant is going on. So when Paul writes of the Galatians and he says, Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And he skipped the Thanksgiving. Everybody takes that as a slap in the face in Galatia. Um, because Right, right, right. And they know that this is Paul cutting to the chase and getting right to the, I'm upset about the following things. Um, so knowing that formula is helpful too. Other people have sometimes noted, this is maybe particular to Paul, um, because not everybody's writing theology in the first century, <laughs> um, but that Paul's letters often have a pattern where he will write, to be broad about it, sometimes people talk, he'll write theology and then praxis later on. That he'll write sort of a, here's what I have to say about God and Christ and about the nature, and then he'll get around to answering individual questions or talking about sort of how we live. That, that may be painting with a broad brushstroke, but you'll sometimes get in Paul's letters after he sort of like expounded, here's the theology I have to tell you, he'll move on to, and sometimes it's a very, very concrete, therefore, you should do this. Mm-hmm. And then you'll get the next four chapters will be, here's how you should live or what you should do. Or he'll take up questions that they've asked him. That It becomes very clear you're reading one half of a conversation. Like often to the church in Corinth, Paul will say, now you asked about such and such. Let me tell you about such and such. And he'll give his answer. And you have to tease out what the question was or what the, what the background situation was. And what we call these letters, they're not... And again, letter writing is kind of, it's dying art. <laughs> um, but it, it's not letters in the way that, that we think about them today. And we've kind of touched on this. It's, it is mostly a teaching kind mm-hmm. of thing. And so uh, if I could put it into more like language of what we read today, these are almost either like a written sermon or like, you know, the pastoral letter in the newsletter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, we're just kind of like, okay, this is a chance for the pastor of the church, which Paul was, you know, mm-hmm either headed up these churches or helped start these churches in some way, shape, or form. It's just way his way of communicating to them outside of Sunday morning worship and saying, 
this is what something else I need you to know. I just don't have time to tell you yeah. because I'm not there or yeah. because I just didn't have time the last time we were together to get this across to you. Yeah, and be- because of that, it-, it means, too, that there are some assumptions that we often don't bring when we read these in Sunday or in personal devotional writing. And one is that, like, Paul assumed his letters would be read publicly mm-hmm. and not, like, one-on-one with a cup of coffee thinking, oh, this is Paul's word just to me. No, this was written to a whole community. Yeah. And... The other probable assumption is he assumed his hearers would would read it and hear it in its entirety, mm-hmm. um, and not like in little life verse breaking up in little, oh, I like this one verse, oh, I like this one verse, mm-hmm. but that there's a flow, there's a train of thought, and that Paul will move from the ideas early on and move, now building on what I've said, therefore this and this and this mm-hmm. and this. So therefore, there's that old uh, uh, that old line that preachers are often taught, anytime you see a therefore, you should ask what it's there mm-hmm. for, that mm-hmm. therefore is never the, the start of a conversation, but it's a midway point. Um, um, and so Paul often assumes, um, maybe the way anybody in the ancient world assumed, that what they wrote would be received as a whole rather than what we do often in church and break it up into preachable chunks. Um, maybe we could also talk about um, that there are times where Paul is addressing issues that are particular to that context, that mm-hmm. church, that community, that don't show up in other letters of his, right? So like, what, what, what difference does that make? I'm thinking of, um, and help me, is it the Corinthian church in which um, he talks about women? I mean, he talks about women in a bunch of different places. There's a a situation where there seems to be uh, a group of Corinthian women prophets who are doing something in worship that he has to address. Yeah, and and so, you know, he, and that's one of those places where Paul is very clearly, at least my understanding, is, is speaking to that particular congregation in mm-hmm. that particular time. Right, right, right. And that's something we have to understand with these letters as well. It's scripture, and there there is truth that, that can be found in it for all time. There are certain places, because there are letters to a particular church, right. that it's going to lean more towards being a truth for that church at that time. It may not generally be a universal truth for the larger church over time. That, I think that's a, a, a helpful example, because... While it is true, for example, in the Corinthian correspondence, Paul takes a position on women having their heads covered when they're leading mm-hmm. worship. Um, that doesn't, that's not like at the core of Paul's, if you could distill all of Paul's theology down, women's head covering is not, <laughs> not a high important topic. But yeah, it's, it's addressed locally. And it's one of those places where it's interesting um, that while you'll get a passage somewhere in the Corinthian correspondence about um, that seems to suggest women shouldn't be in leadership roles, he also talks about when a woman is going to get up to preach she should have her head covered. So yeah. it's like, he's assuming it's happening and is okay with it there. So there, there's this, it's very occasional, clearly. And sometimes it seems like he's addressing that particular circumstance, not thinking 2,000 years ago, how could they misread this? He's thinking, right now, right here in Corinth, what am I going to do about these people who are doing such and such? Um, and re- remembering that time-bound or, or, or situational-based piece, I think is important for remembering you're reading somebody else's mail, and that means there's going to be places where, oh, what would what would have been going on that makes this an issue? Mm-hmm. Um, you look like you have a, something you are going to add, Sarah. Well, I think that, that phrase keeps reminding me of, um, you know, reading other people's mail is we're only getting half the conversation. Right. That we don't have, um, you know, oftentimes... Paul or whomever is answering a letter, mm-hmm. and we don't have that letter that they're answering. Right. And that makes a difference, because what the question is certainly affects the way the answer comes out, right? Yeah. Um, there are, there are, well, like, for example, one one example that comes to mind is in um, uh, First Thessalonians, where Paul is talking about um, 
what will happen when Christ comes back again. And the best we can reconstruct is that the people who uh, Paul is writing to are upset. Well, did we miss Jesus coming again? Because some of us are dying, and did we miss Jesus? Or did the people who died, did dear Aunt Edna who died, is she going to miss it when Jesus finally comes back? And Paul writes seemingly to address that. No, don't you worry. Aunt Edna's going to be just fine. In fact, she's going to be part of the triumphal procession when Jesus comes back. Don't you worry. Um, But man, it's possible to misread Paul's letter and, and assume the question was, can you predict for us the year or the political events that will be tell that will be happening when Jesus comes back, and that's the furthest thing from Paul's mind. He's thinking pastorally. Oh, you guys are worried about poor Aunt Edna who died and isn't get to, get, didn't get to see Jesus. Don't you worry, she'll be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you forget that what Paul is doing is answering a question, you might misunderstand that. Um, similarly you might concoct the idea that Jesus is going to whisk away people in some kind of rapture when the imagery Paul uses is, no, when Jesus comes back, he's coming to what is his own rather than Jesus is whisking people away. But if you bring the wrong question or forget that what you're getting is the answer to a question, you'll mishear what's being said. Yeah, that's important. Um, Maybe we could also talk for a little bit about, we've got... um, Letters that that are attributed to Paul and are written to whole churches. We also have some things that have Paul's name on them and are written ostensibly to individuals, like uh, First and Second Timothy or Titus or uh, Philemon. Um, and uh, it's weird in a sense that not only are we reading other people's mail, but a very specific individual person's mail, and that makes it even weirder to read. Like, if I read letter to another church, I might go, well, okay, I'm part of a different church, but this is applicable to me because I'm part of a church. But a letter that's written to a particular person, it's, it's a little bit harder to tease out. What does this mean for me, right? What, what, what do we make of that? Well, I think, you know, while they're, they're written to definitely specific people, I mean, again, there's a, that ultimate truth that lies in there. Sure. And so, like, to think of the Timothy uh, correspondences, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Paul is Timothy's mentor, Timothy's teacher, you know, and so he's encouraging Timothy as a young preacher, as a young church starter, church planner, you know, okay, this is how you do this. As Mm -hmm. somebody who has lived through this, has has done this work for a while, and has um, seen the ups and downs of ministry, here is some advice to help you mm-hmm, in this. Mm-hmm. And as somebody, you know, Timothy is a very young person, as somebody who would be considered a young clergy myself, you know, it's helpful, like when he talks about him, don't let people discourage you because of your age. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's a reminder that the church, church leadership isn't just for those people that have been around forever. Sure. But, you know, church leadership can be found in folks that are atypical, that are very, very young. You know, mm-hmm. Even a teenager in early 20s young, and those people that have been around for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. Sure, sure. Um, th- that's interesting that you, you mentioned that that uh, connection. Um, it, it, it's interesting to me, too, um, that as Paul is offering it, what is framed as like pastoral advice from a wise old seasoned pastor and certainly the voice you hear in first and second timothy sort of will even drop hints like now i'm coming to the end of my life i mean you can you need to read it in like an old man voice um but the church has only been around for like 30 years and paul isn't really an old man he's just about to be executed by the rome i mean like even even paul doesn't die an old man he gets executed and some it's interesting to me that like you get what is what is functionally pastoral advice for people who are making this up as they were going along Mm -hmm. you know that i some I, i sometimes think we forget this and we assume that when we read the bible the people who wrote it down knew that this was going to one day be read with the view of 2,000 years rather than 
this movement's got to survive. How am I going to tell Timothy to keep things going? And this is written with not like the, well, I've had several studies commissioned and the latest Pew poll says do this, but more like, I tried this in the years that I was leading, so now you try this, because they're, they're trying to figure this out as they go along. There's, there's truth for us to be spoken, even though we've been doing this for 2,000 years now, but there's, there's some ways in which our moment is, feels different, because we've got a whole, we've got 20 centuries of baggage to deal with, and Paul's just like, um, let me dump this on you, here's what I think you should try to do, but I've only been doing this for a couple of decades, too. Um, there are also letters in the New Testament that are sometimes called the general letters, mm-hmm. and that's just a fancy way of saying the ones that have no connection to Paul. <laughs> um, and, I mean, what, what, what do we make of those? Are there things that are important to know that are distinctive about those letters uh, compared with the ones that have Paul's name or tradition attached to them? Well, they're often shorter. Okay, yeah, so whereas, like, uh, Romans will is what we call 16 chapters, although brief side note, chapters are a later edition as are verses. Yes. Mm-hmm. But helpful Bible note, I didn't learn this until much later in life than I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say how late it was in life that I learned. Our New Testament is organized, uh, at least the letter portion, by length and not by um, like okay. which was written first. Mm-hmm. And so like the Paul's letters are goes from the longest to the shortest, not we think Paul wrote Romans first. Probably was one of his last letters, actually, um, but longest and shortest. So some are really, really long, some are short, and then the general letters tend to be a little bit shorter. Yeah, they tend to be shorter, which I think more tells us more about Paul than anything else. <laughs> he is quite uh, wordy. Yeah. Although Hebrews, man, Hebrews can go for a while, too. Yeah. Hebrews yeah, has 13 chapters. Um, yeah. And in fact, Hebrews is an interesting case. It may be, may be unique in all of the New Testament is in that there is no even claim of an authorship mm-hmm. or tradition. There there are some who assumed it was written by Paul for a while in some centuries because it has the length of a Pauline letter and sometimes can get way down the nitty-gritty weeds. Um, but it, it doesn't have Paul's name on it. Paul, it doesn't start out, I, Paul, am writing you a letter like Paul will often do. Um, and there's no name attached to it, whereas, you know, First, Second Peter starts out with Simon Peter, two with a whatever, or James or whatever. Um, and the three letters that we call First and Second and Third John, the first one has the name John in it, and the other two are so close in style that people assume the same author wrote it. But Hebrews is just this outlier. We don't know at all who wrote it. Um, and th- that seems interesting to me, that when the early Christians decided what things they would put together, um, that they included this even though it didn't have the... the draw of a particular author. I mean, again, some people assume then, oh, it must have been one of Paul's letters, he just forgot to write his name on it. But it doesn't really have that in the text. It doesn't say Paul wrote this or anybody. I, I know some some scholars or theologians over the centuries thought maybe um, uh, Apollos wrote it, other people have suggested Barnabas, other people have suggested all sorts of other people, but we, we just don't know. And yet, there it is, and it, it, it has a, a place in the scriptures uh, today, too. And it doesn't read like a letter exactly, in mm-hmm. that it doesn't start with a greeting, it doesn't end with a closing. It feels much more like an extra bonus theology lecture or a sermon series or something. Um, we also get the possibility in some of those general letters that they were written not to a single congregation, but to several. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll get a hint in that, like in First and Second Timothy, there'll be a reference to the churches in Asia Minor, and the assumption is this becomes a circular letter that this would have been passed around, um, and that maybe there was enough similar going on in these contexts to uh, to warrant, yeah, you guys just read all this, that, that's, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but sometimes we have no idea. In fact, you'll find some scholars who think that some of what we call letters might have originally been sermons um, that were sort of eventually written down and codified and circulated or something like that, because some have the feel of a, of a lived speech event rather than uh, a letter that's, that's sat down and, and written. Are there other things that are worth knowing or, or um, considering before we dig into, uh, or, or while we're uh, digging into the, the epistles ourselves? Any other things that would be helpful for folks to know? Yeah. Uh, Martin Luther almost wanted to cut out the letter of James. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, and says, I think says more about Martin Luther than it does about James, maybe. Probably. Um, but maybe this is a, a, a moment to, to talk about why there's that issue for Luther and how do we make sense, how do we deal with there's multiple voices, right? Yeah, so for Martin Luther, he definitely was against the whole um, works righteousness that was going around in the Roman Catholic Church where you have to earn your salvation. And so Martin Luther was very pushing against anything that would indicate that you had to work for your own salvation. And, and salvation is the gift of, from God. And the letter of James, though, is all about faith without works is dead. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's basically what James is all about. Yeah, yeah. So Luther, of course, very much struggled with this message because, like, ah. Uh, like my like you shouldn't have to do anything to earn salvation and but you know James is saying faith without works is dead and so yeah he almost just cut it out of the bible and rather than deal with it but eventually did come around to just okay this is something we have to live with and this is something we have to work with and you know what does it mean to have faith without works is it really dead and how does that like how do I reconcile that with my salvation? And it's interesting to me because I think I almost feel like if, if if Luther could have sat down with the author of James, probably over a beer of some kind, and actually listened, I think they would have come out and been like, "Oh yeah, that's what I've been saying all along. We've just been using different words for mm-hmm. it." Like because yeah. to read anything else of Martin Luther's, Martin Luther will famously say. Uh, like in his uh, Freedom of a Christian from 1520, a Christian is perfectly free and is, has no obligation to anybody. We're completely free in Christ. And then the very next sentence will say, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all whose job is to love the neighbor at every turn. And Luther gets the paradox of that. And it seems like he's unable to to see that the, the shorthand of faith without works is dead and Paul's salvation by grace through faith, that these are part of a tension. They, they are both side by side and are both true. For someone whose theology is so anchored in paradox and tension, it's it's hard for me to get that, that Luther didn't see, oh, Paul and James can be okay in the Bible together because they're both sides of a tension. Um, but it does seem like the letter of James and the letters of Paul are living in the same world and dealing with caricatures of each other that like James whoever whoever has written James our guess is somebody named James actually somebody named Jacob because uh, the actual name is Jacobus um, fun fact <laughs> um, but whoever that uh, James or Jacob was um, he seems to be aware that there are people out there saying uh, I believe in Jesus therefore I don't have to care about anybody I just believe facts about Jesus and and seems to have heard or been aware of like a caricatured version of Paul's message about being justified through faith apart from works of the law and it's fair to say too when Paul says justified by works apart by faith apart from the law 
Paul means to say you don't have to keep kosher in order to be a Christian. Paul is particularly thinking about the works of things like you don't. We're not requiring you have to become Jewish first. You don't have to keep kosher. You don't have to be circumcised. Those things aren't essential. It's always been about this living, daring trust and faith in God. Paul assumes that will work itself out and that you will live in ways that love your neighbor. Of course, Paul assumes that. But again, like like you said, Sarah, in in Luther's world, he can't help but hear Paul through the lens of the medieval church of his day and is assuming Paul is saying. You're free to be jerks to each other <laughs> uh, as long as you believe the correct facts about Jesus. And it's, it's those caricatures maybe that are getting ruled out. And that Paul wants to say, nope, there's nothing you can do to earn God's love. And James wants to say, any living faith in God is going to result in love for your neighbor because that's the kind of God we have. Um, and that those should be able to exist side by side. And yeah, sometimes people have been really upset about how, how those both are in our Bibles. I, I think this is this is a helpful piece, though, as I as I consider my in my own life what it means that we treat all of this collection of books we've been saying all through this series, this library, that together it is authoritative for us, and that that means it's okay when there are voices in Scripture that poke at me. In fact, maybe that's a sign I've got a living, real faith and not fake. I just recite the right words, kind of a faith, you know, um, and. If I recognize what I've got is not one voice but a chorus of voices, and sometimes, like it, it, I almost, I almost find it helpful to think of them like singing in four-part harmony, you know. And there's going to be times where all the voices are singing a C, E, and a G of a C major chord, and it all sounds, oh, that all harmonizes nicely. And sometimes there's tension in those voices. And in music, if you get a suspended seventh or you get a weird chord or something, you don't say the music is wrong. You say the tension is building towards something. And I guess I think it's important for us to hold on to as as Christians, as especially as leaders and religious professionals like we are, that um, the, the the tension is important and not to get rid of it, whether it's trying to iron out all the Gospels into one Gospel that doesn't have any tension in it or doesn't have any um, conflicts in timing to it like have been done, or to iron out the voices and, and get rid of the tension there too. Well, maybe we've given enough people tools for navigating the, uh, the epistles. So uh, we'll invite you to join us one more time in this series on biblical genres uh, as we finish up with the last one. We'll save it for next time what it is. But join us next time on Crazy Faith Talk. See ya. Bye.